From the newsrooms of The Daily Press and The Virginian Pilot, this is Beyond the Headlines. I'm Marie Albigez. Each week, we interview reporters from our newsrooms about how and why they covered a story. This week, Alicia Sowers and Scott Doherty come on to talk about the case of Dr. Javed Perwez. He was arrested a few weeks ago and is accused of performing unnecessary surgeries on women for years. Here's me with Alicia and Scott. Alicia and Scott, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. So Alicia, you normally cover health and Scott uh, courts and crime, particularly federal courts. So what was the instance that kind of brought you two together and your two beats together? Scott, you had a story on a Friday afternoon. Tell us about it. Friday afternoon, I heard that there was a case that I should be following here. I, I found this Chesapeake gynecologist had been charged with Medicaid fraud, but this was not your typical Medicaid fraud case. The allegation wasn't just that he was cooking his books. It was the allegation was that he was actually performing unnecessary surgeries on unsuspecting patients. And unlike probably 99 out of 100 Medicaid fraud cases, the feds were actually moving to keep this doctor locked up, and he's still locked up two, three weeks later. When you say it was on your radar, how did it get there? How do you normally find these kind of stories? I spend my life on a, a website called Pacer, and so every day I'm basically looking at these things. I know that they're going to be having initial appearances at 2.30 usually on a, you know, every day, so it's part of my routine to keep an eye out and see what's coming there. So you came across this one and thought, hmm, that could be interesting. Usually a Medicaid fraud case is going to be interesting in general, uh, you know, because if the feds are going after somebody like that, there's usually some money involved, there's some innocent people involved. And this one was obviously uh, taken up quite a few notches when you start having uh, unsuspecting patients having, you know, unnecessary surgeries. The allegations in here are pretty bad. And what we've been seeing for the last few weeks is woman after woman basically saying, like, I wasn't able to have kids. I'm, I'm concerned what Dr. Perwez could have done to me. I, I'm concerned of, did I really need to have that hysterectomy? Did I really need to have those six, seven surgeries that he gave me? And it seems like this is going to be a, a long-going story for us and the feds. So. so what did the initial indictments say about Dr. Javed Perwez? It's focusing very much on just the billing practices. The gist of this indictment here, or not even indictment yet, it's uh, this criminal uh, affidavit, was that the doctor for, uh, I think going back to 2010, was basically having patients come in and then he would immediately say, okay, uh, I did a test. I, I pulled out something called, I believe, a hysteroscope, which is a way to examine the uterus and the cervix and says, yep, we need to do something in here and schedule them for the next weekend, two weekends down the road and get a surgery quickly scheduled and performed. The affidavit is very detailed. It goes into allegations that the hysteroscope he was using was broken for a while, that he hasn't had it repaired and serviced in several years. Um, there's also the allegation that the amount of time that he was actually using the hysteroscope would have been insufficient to actually tell anything. The way it was basically described is that he would be using it for five to 10 seconds to examine a woman's uterus. So there's a lot of allegations in here that he was doing these examinations to say he did them. And then there was the allegation that he actually performed these surgeries and that he was basically doing them so quick back to back to back that the hospital staff was having a hard time keeping up with him at the hospitals that he performed him at, uh, Chesapeake Regional and uh, Bonscore's uh, Harborview and Maryview. 
So this is all detailed in the criminal affidavit. The FBI investigation, we find out, has been going on since September of 2018 for these charges. And so you write the story on kind of an innocuous Friday afternoon when we all know in the newsroom that news tends to get lost in the void because everyone's on their way home for the weekend and that sort of thing. And what happens next, Alicia, in terms of internally, what kind of messages are we getting? Scott approached me on Friday and had asked, have you heard anything about this? Uh, Just wondering if this was on your radar. I hadn't heard anything yet. He quickly puts together that first story And we immediately started hearing from countless patients, some current, some former, many of them uh, repeating sort of the pattern of things that we heard in the affidavit about multiple surgeries over a period of time of being treated by Dr. Perez and wanting to get a hold of their medical records, wanting to see oh my gosh, did I not need to have that hysterectomy? Did I not need to have my ovaries removed? And reaching out to us, like, how can we get more information about this? And so immediately we noticed this is different from other stories that any of us have sort of worked on in terms of the amount of response that we were getting from people, just tons of emails rolling in and people commenting on social media. I mean, wouldn't you say that's the case? We've received over 100 calls and emails. I'm sitting in court and women are walking up to me uh, in completely unrelated cases, telling me details of their medical procedures that they've received over the years. I'm knowing about random women's hysterectomies and I've, I've known them for five seconds. They've just walked up to him and been like, I also received a hysterectomy from him. He was always such a nice man. He was always so always willing to make a joke, always you know patting me on the leg and telling me it was gonna be all right. And now these women are, you know, standing in the middle of uh, the street in the middle of courtrooms telling me, I can't believe this. I'm so concerned. Like, I've never had to have a surgery from any other doctor in my life. And for the past 10 years, I've had six surgeries with this man. So, And one thing that I'd just like to add is that a lot of people weren't really familiar with what a DNC is, a DNC procedure. That was kind of a new term for a lot of people. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this correctly, dilation and curatages, but this is a procedure that doctors often do after a miscarriage. And what we learned in the affidavit was that um, DNCs were a common thing among patients in the case and that I think they were referred to as annual cleanouts in uh, a tip that an employee at a hospital had passed along to FBI agents. So that kind of gives you a little idea of what we're talking about here. And that's a term that we've been hearing a lot uh, through the emails that we've received. And we haven't been able to verify all of those emails that we've gotten, but we are working on verifying those things. Right. So tell us about Dr. Perwes, aside from these allegations, what have you been able to find out about what kind of man he is, what kind of doctor he is? We know that he has been practicing medicine in Virginia since the early 80s. Um, He also apparently had a medical license in the state of New York for a few years as well. In an agreement with the state of New York, he actually gave up his license. He was born in Pakistan. And then we also know that uh, earlier in the 80s, he was a doctor at Maryview Hospital in Portsmouth. 
an, an obstetrics uh, gynecologist. And one of the early things uh, in his career that we learned about through Board of Medicine, the State Board of Medicine records, is that there was a complaint against him in 1984 for similar types of claims. Apparently, he lost his job at Maryview Hospital in 1982 for the same types of things. Performing surgeries, hysterectomies on patients without good clinical judgment, um, without good medical records for, uh, you know, the rationale for those procedures. And um, so he apparently lost his job. And then the Board of Medicine reviewed that in the form of a complaint. um, But there was no real disciplinary action that followed. It was sort of a letter of disapproval hey, you know, don't do this, keep better records. Apparently through that informal conference with the Board of Medicine at that period of time, he had admitted that he was also having a sexual relationship with one of his patients. So in that letter of disapproval, they also said, you know, please exercise better judgment in the future. But he didn't lose his license at that time and continued up until the 90s. In the 90s, he had one more disciplinary action. And I don't know, Scott, if you want to pick up from here and talk a little bit about that. The disciplinary action is a lot more on my side of the uh, story here because he was uh, busted in 1996 and pleaded guilty to two counts of tax evasion for, among other things, trying to write off a uh, new red Ferrari that he bought as a, I believe, ultrasound machine. So that got him in hot water there. He got some probation time. And, uh, you know, his license was temporarily revoked, but he was able to get that reinstated in 1998. And 20 years later, he's back in federal court charged with Medicaid fraud. One thing I'd like to say about Perez, though, is one of the remarkable things that I've received in all of the emails that I've gotten and all of the phone calls is a lot of his patients liked him. Even people that are saying to me, I've got concerns about all of these surgeries that he's given me over these years and I can't have kids and... You know, I've got all these concerns. And in the same breath, they'll say he was always a really nice man, though. He was always really friendly. He was always there, you know. And I've actually had a couple women that have said that he's talked them out of having hysterectomies out of other procedures. So it wasn't a universal thing where every person, the answer was always hysterectomy. It seems that, you know, at least some of these women are standing up and saying, hey, he gave me a lot of surgeries, but he actually talked me out of some other surgeries. Um, so he does have fans out there. There are people that have reached out to his uh, defense attorney to talk to them. You know, and to and, us. And to us. Um, I don't want to overstate that either, though. Uh, you know, I would say probably 75, 80 percent of the emails and calls that we've gotten have been more on the I'm concerned. What do I do? Not on the I want to make sure that everybody knows how great a doctor Perez is. So, Scott, what do those two charges, health care fraud and making false statements about healthcare matters, what do those two charges really mean? The way that the feds generally prosecute cases are, it, it's a lot easier for them to look at fraud, Medicaid fraud. You can look at something and say, okay, he billed for this procedure and this was an unnecessary procedure. You can go, if you can prove that that was an unnecessary procedure, that's a very clear cut. It's a very clean lines. That's what the feds really like to do is go for, you know, what is the exact crime that we can charge and what can we prove and what can we get a conviction on? What's crazy about this one is that this is just about the money side of things. They're, they're not arguing that he assaulted these women. They're not saying that he, there's no malicious wounding. There's no any of those things. This is a, this is all about, quite frankly, what's in the paperwork. 
And that's a lot easier to prove generally is what's in paperwork than having to go and prove that this woman was assaulted because you can go and then say like, oh, well, the woman consented. She signed this you know, consent form. Therefore, she was allowing the you know, surgery to happen even if she did not need it. That seems to be where this is going. Now, an unusual aspect of this is just because the feds right now have charged for the Medicaid fraud, that doesn't mean that they could not find a charge to charge him for something else. Right now, we're in a very early stage. They charged him, quite frankly, because the next Saturday, he had a lineup of dozens of you know different surgeries scheduled at you know Chesapeake Regional. So they, they arrested him when they arrested him to prevent any more surgeries. They could indict on new charges. The other unusual thing here is state prosecutors could also get involved in this. Um, there, there's nothing saying that a local police department, a local prosecutor couldn't pick up the mantle of a patient and say, no, we're going to go and prosecute him for X, Y, and Z as far as a assault, a malicious wounding. I don't even know what other crimes there could be there, but I'm sure there's a laundry list of crimes that a uh, you know prosecutor could come up with if they wanted. The other side of that is I don't know if anybody will, because if the feds are able to secure a conviction, this is going to be a lengthy uh, sentence that would probably be handed down for a man that's already a, in his 60s. And what exactly are you accomplishing by getting more years tacked on top of that? Um, so far, I, I've, I've reached out to a couple of prosecutors. I haven't heard anything. You know, no one said, yes, we're on this yet. But my understanding of the law is that you know, there's no double jeopardy there. Just being charged with Medicaid fraud does not mean that you can't be charged with doing something else on top of it. So. And what kind of sentencing is he facing? I know the maximums are, you know, I believe 20 years per charge. And a fact set like this, you're not walking out with months. You're not walking out with the probation that he received last time. This would be lock and key time that would be happening. And we've had a couple women say that they've reached out to their personal attorneys and asked us who should their attorneys contact. So a, a patient with an attorney looking to go after them, which route would they take? I don't know exactly how to answer that question because right now there are so many women and so many private attorneys involved in this right now. I, I don't know how it's going to finally shake out. There's going to be a lot of people filing lawsuits. Um, that, that is a given no matter what. There's going to be a lot of lawyers filing a lot of lawsuits. They'll probably coalesce into one large lawsuit. Right now, Dr. Perez is a, a, a fairly wealthy man. That's part of the reason he's still incarcerated. Um, they're saying he's got $40,000 basically in cash, easily accessible in his bank accounts, that he owns a Bentley and a few other Mercedes and luxury cars, um, uh, $1.2 million in real estate, I want to say. So he's he's a wealthy man, but the feds are going to be seizing a lot of those properties if they secure a conviction. A lot of these lawsuits are going to depend on what his malpractice insurance was covering, how that plays out. And there's also the other side of this is, you know, Dr. Perez can also pull in his own medical experts. I know that that's already on tap of what he's going to be doing to prove, hey, wait a minute. No, these were actually necessary medical procedures. It's not a just because the feds have alleged what they've alleged in these court documents does not mean that every person that's been their patient is going to be able to file a successful lawsuit. It just means that there's going to be a lot of lawsuits given these allegations. So what's next with the federal case? That's a little hard to say right now. We're still pretty early on in this. It's going to be going before a grand jury. Uh, then we'll get an indictment. Then we'll have another arraignment on those charges. And then we'll start picking trial dates sometime next year. From the way this is written, it is clear that we're going to be talking about the 
thousands, the possibly hundreds of thousands of pages of uh, you know medical records that are going to be exchanged in discovery. So this is going to be a long case. This is not going to be something that's going to be handled quickly. This is not going to be 70 days and we're at trial. This is going to be summer 2020. We might be seeing a trial if we're lucky. And Alicia, what's next for you in terms of the health reporting aspect of this? I'm very interested in looking into why the Board of Medicine didn't do more when they had knowledge. And what I'm learning through reporting this is that back in that time period in the 1980s, when this first complaint was brought to the Board of Medicine, at that time, they had the authority to discipline on the grounds of gross negligence, gross malpractice, which is actually a higher bar than a lot of other um, health professions boards. That changed in 2003, and that was changed to simple negligence. And what I'm told is that the difference with gross negligence is that you have a provider who is intentionally reckless and has a disregard for someone's life or property, or there's a pattern of substandard care. And the simple negligence would be less care than a reasonable person under the same circumstances. So I found that to be interesting because depending on the layperson who's hearing what these charges are and what the original complaints are, they'd say, why wouldn't you find that there? So I'm interested in doing a little bit more reporting and finding out how do you view gross negligence, gross malpractice, and could there have been more done? Um, what I know right now uh, from my contacts at the Board of Medicine is that it's really difficult to get more information about those hearing proceedings at the time. Perhaps they could have been recorded. Perhaps there could have been a transcript, but those records don't appear to exist anymore. So all we have are uh, some of the documents of what happened after those proceedings. So, Alicia, what is Dr. Perwes's standing with the hospitals? I mean, he was employed up until his arrest. Well, he had clinical privileges, uh, which doesn't mean that he's on staff, but he had clinical privileges at Bon Secours Maryview Hospital, that's in Portsmouth, and Harborview, which is also a Bon Secours hospital, that's in Suffolk, and Chesapeake Regional. The most recent information we have is that he had clinical privileges at those three hospitals. The interesting thing um, is that what we know from his past in the 1980s, you know, he lost his job at Maryview Hospital and also lost his clinical privileges there. How he was able to, again, get clinical privileges at Maryview, we just don't know the answer to that. We've been trying to get information from the hospital systems, and we're really not getting much except for uh, Bon Secours saying, hey, we're looking into this, and we are cooperating uh, with the investigation. But Maryview, um, to my knowledge, has been owned by Bon Secours since 1984. So if you do the math and you know that he lost his job in 1982 in this uh, disciplinary action from the board came down in 1984, or I should say the letter of disapproval came down in 1984. There shouldn't be a break in continuity there. I think they should have been aware of that. So I'd like to get more information on that if we can. And there's one hospital who has refused to comment at all, right? Yeah, Chesapeake Regional has declined to comment at this time. I don't know if they will be able to share some more information down the line. But what we have heard is that uh, he was doing surgeries at Chesapeake Regional very recently. Well, I'm sure we will have both of you on again as your reporting on this continues. Alicia and Scott, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this week. You can find all the episodes of Beyond the Headlines wherever you get your podcasts. 
please subscribe and leave a comment and tune in every Tuesday for a new episode. I'm Marie Albajez. Thanks for listening.